So this morning we're going to just keep pushing on in our uh, study of, of Matthew. And we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 18 and 20, 18 through uh, 31. And you'll notice that this is actually going to be covering two stories that are connected with the and, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And so um, I'll just go ahead and, and begin with our with reading God's word. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, Go away, for this girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. There are a couple points uh, from this first story. Um, because it is unique in, in a few ways. And then after we uh, look at the first story, we'll move to the second story. And we're going to ask ourselves, why does Matthew connect these stories together with the word and? What is he wanting, what is he highlighting by putting them together that we would not get if he put them apart? So with that in mind, let's uh, set the stage with a couple of items here. In verse 18, it said the story begins, Jesus was saying these things. So Jesus was in the middle of talking with a group of people, and then the ruler came in. What, what, was, what was the setting that this ruler was entering into? Well, it's what we covered last week and the week before that. Jesus was in the house of Matthew, the tax collector. And he was talking about what? The old cloth with the new patch or the old wineskin with the new wine. He was talking about how he cannot, he is coming to bring something new. And if he were going, if he's bringing something new, it has to have a new container. He can't bring the new covenant and put it in the old system. If he does that, if he takes the new covenant and mixes it with the old covenant, both don't work. So he's saying this old old uh, old covenant that God has with his people is coming to a close and I am beginning a new covenant. It is a new thing. And so in the midst of that, this ruler comes in and he says, my Lord, my daughter has died, but you can bring her back to life. I mean, it is one thing for Jesus to heal the sick. 
It's one thing for him to calm a storm, but death is pretty final. Who has heard of a daughter being raised from the dead? I mean, this is miraculous stuff here. And it is no wonder that it comes right after Jesus saying, there has to be a new wineskin for the new wine. And indeed, later on, Jesus, uh, it's a couple chapters away. Well, I guess we're at the end of chapter 9. So in chapter 11, John the Baptist comes. He's in, he's in prison and his disciples say, look, John the Baptist is doubting. Like, are you the one or should we wait for another? And one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples, he says, go tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The dead are raised. Jesus, in, going to do, in doing this act of raising this little girl, is declaring the time of the Messiah has come. Something new is here. So this, this uh, scene that this man is walking in on is, is one thing, right? But then he goes, he convinces Jesus um, to, uh, I lost my, lost my place. He convinces Jesus to come with him. All right, so the, I think it's, in, it's actually in the first, uh, the second, second verse. So chapter, verse 19, it says, and Jesus rose and followed him. All this time we've seen Jesus asking people to follow Jesus. But, but the phrase is flipped here. No longer is Jesus asking this ruler to follow him. The ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, come with me. And it says that Jesus followed this man. That is significant. Because when you come to Christ, he is willing to go through whatever it is you're going through. Whatever dark places you are afraid to go but have to, Jesus is willing to go with you into those dark places. Whatever it is you're dealing with in your life, whatever corner, dark, nasty, infested, sewage place you have in your soul, Jesus will go there with you if you ask him to. But oftentimes we're too busy trying to hide that from ourselves and from everybody else. And Jesus says, no, that's where we need to go. But he waits for us to ask him. Are you willing to ask Jesus to go with you into your worst nightmare. I mean, this man just lost his daughter. Are you willing to ask Jesus to go there with you? And then comes this second part of the story. Jesus is on the way to to, to raise this man's daughter from the dead. And a woman comes up to him. Behind Jesus, if I can just touch his garment, I will be healed. In the passage, it says she told herself. She told herself. What do you tell yourself? This woman who had every reason to be discouraged, to think that God wasn't for her, to have every excuse not to go find Jesus, she told herself. If I could just touch his garment, I'll be healed. What is it you tell yourself regularly, every day? What thoughts are you letting into your head 
Are they thoughts that lead you to Jesus? Or are they thoughts that take you away from Jesus? Are they thoughts that unite you to Christ in faith? Or are they thoughts that tear you apart, that divide you in doubt, in discouragement, or in victimhood? This woman is an example to us of not letting our circumstances dictate our attitude. We are in control of our own attitudes. And this woman's attitude led her to Jesus, and in the end, he says what? Your faith. Your faith makes you well. And yet it wasn't the garment. I mean, she thought, she, if I could just touch the garment, it would heal me. I'll be healed. But it's not the garment itself that healed her. Jesus says it was her faith. We'll, we'll put that on the table or on the shelf here and we'll return to it in just a minute. The second point from this first story comes from answering the question, why does Matthew include this scene with this hemorrhaging woman? I mean, it could easily be a standalone section, right? I mean, Matthew could have told about the young ruler, or not the young ruler, just told about the ruler, Jesus saved his uh, daughter, and then, by the way, there was a woman who came and told herself, if I could just touch Jesus, uh, I'll be healed. She touches him, Jesus heals her. That could be a separate story, but, but he combines these together. I mean, so we really have three stories packed into, into one section here with the two blind men following. Why does Matthew do that, I ask myself? Part of the answer has to do with the common theme of faith, which connects these two scenes together. Uh, and as I said, we're, that's kind of shelved, but I, I do want to point to it because that is a part answer. But I think a different answer is that this scene presents a unique picture of the life of Christ. He could not pick up and go somewhere without being interrupted, without being needed, and we get to see him respond in that situation. He's not flustered. He's not rushed. He's not inconvenienced. Jesus doesn't lose his humanity or his compassion in the midst of a catastrophe. He doesn't get caught up in our crises, and yet, he is moved by them. Jesus gets up and follows this man. But he is calm enough to notice a gentle touch of this desperate woman. I mean, how many people would, if he was moving through the streets, how many people would have been brushing up against him? And yet he, he didn't stop for any of them. But this, this woman, who'd been bleeding for over a decade, reached out and touched Jesus in faith. And he takes notice of it. How many of us just brush up against Jesus? Because it's just a part of what we do every day or every week. It's part of the rhythms that we have. It's just part of who we are, whether it's been the way we're raised or a change we're making in our life. We just brush up against Jesus, but we never reach out to touch him. Well, Ryan, what's the difference? The difference is that one is a matter of faith and one is a matter of circumstance. 
Are we going to reach out to Christ in faith? Or are we just going to go about our business and when we brush up against Jesus, when I have time for devotion, when I think about saying a prayer, those are instances that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good, I guess, but there's no faith involved. Jesus always has time for those who come to him in faith. I think sometimes we kind of spiritualize or like um, fantasize or put Jesus' life and his ministry on this earth in like a, you know, an otherworldly sense about it. But the reality is that Jesus walked on legs, his feet would hurt. He'd go down a street. Somebody running down the road may bump into him and, oh, sorry, excuse me. I mean, we don't know what his life was like, but I tell you what, it was more like ours than we give credit to. Jesus had time for this woman who reached out to him in faith as opposed to a stranger who just happened to bump into him. The difference is intentionality, and the difference is faith. So the second story about these two blind men, there's a unique feature about it which actually ties the two stories together. All right, you remember I talked about how when there's the word and at the beginning of a story or beginning of a paragraph, Matthew wants us to link those together. He wants us to look at them as a pair. And so it says, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. Later, Jesus will ask them, do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord. So Jesus heals them and he charges them sternly or strictly or urgently don't tell anyone. See, in both these stories, we read that Jesus doesn't want the word of his deeds spreading. I mean, he told the the scene from the dead daughter. Because of the decomposition in the Middle East, they didn't have a way to preserve the bodies, and so Oftentimes you would hire mourners to come and mourn your family member because it would take too long to spread the word just 15 to 20 miles down the road for family members who live far away to come and they wouldn't be able to come and mourn with the body. They would come later on in the week. And so you would hire musicians and professional mourners to come. By the time they get there, you would know if they're dead or not. And so for Jesus to come and tell them, oh no, she's just asleep. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, we've been sitting here mourning and wailing for hours and she's obviously dead. Why did Jesus say that? It's the same reason he told these men who cried, son of David. He doesn't want the word of who he is to spread. Now that surprises us because... Here we are charged as Christians to spread the name of Jesus to the world. I mean, that's the whole point of the Christmas boxes, right? To spread the gospel. Why does Jesus not want it out what he's doing? 
The answer lies in the way the entire book of Matthew unfolds. Jesus tells people to stay hush-hush about him. Because if word got out who he was, there would be a revolt. The Jewish people in mass would come and take Jesus, crown him king of the Jews, and they would pick up arms to overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus did not come to overthrow the Romans. He came for a much deadlier enemy. Jesus came to come and overthrow the works of Satan. The mission requires that Jesus not dine with the elite. Notice he didn't walk into the palace and tell Pilate, yeah, I'm the son of God, so you guys can just leave. I'll take care of my people now, thanks. He didn't walk with the great influencers of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He didn't do anything to draw attention to himself in a worldly way. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to um, make a name for yourself, but what do you do? You create a social media account. You do things that will spread your name to get attention so you can have great influence over influencers. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus influence grows because he heals the blind. Because he causes the lame to walk. Because he raises the dead. Jesus has a ministry to fulfill. And if word gets out too soon about who he is, his ministry is over. And the mass groupthink comes in and destroys his work. And he cannot allow that to happen. His mission is too great to let it be ruined by the small-mindedness of men. Now, interestingly enough, for those of you who don't know what the word apologetics means, apologetics is a word that we think sounds like an apology, saying I'm sorry, but apologetics is actually a defense. And one of the major, I don't know about major, but um, one of the uh, charges that modern popular atheists give to Christians to show that Christianity can't be true is that they say the God of the Bible seems to be some attention-seeking, praise-demanding toddler. Because he's always saying, give praise to Jesus, love Jesus, focus on me, me, me all the time. And I couldn't help but notice that that is the exact opposite of who Jesus actually is, if you will read the scriptures. Jesus shows us that he is a wise, determined, patient, mature, gentle God whose love is fierce and whose hand is steady. He has a plan and he is willing to see it through, even if it means hiding in the remote villages of ancient Israel to keep the powerful from coming and taking him and making him do things that he didn't come to do. So this whole story about 
these two blind men calling Jesus the son of David. Shh, don't say that so loudly. And Matthew connects that with the prior story. Because he actually lied to the mourners. Why? I mean, I thought Jesus was supposed to be the God of truth. Jesus' mission is so great that he cannot allow the small-mindedness of human endeavor to upset it. But that's not the only uh, that's not the only thing that unites these two stories together. Faith. I said we'd shelve that. It's time to pull that off the shelf in our last few minutes here. <clears throat> Faith is an interesting, mysterious thing because it's not a physical object. You remember the, the lady said, the woman said, if I could just touch his garment, I will be healed. And yet it wasn't a garment that she was after, was it? No, it was the power of Jesus. Faith is something we can't see. We can't give it credit. We can't hand it over to someone saying, oh yeah, this worked really well for me. Here, try this. You can't do that with faith. It's not a relic. It's something much greater. And faith also isn't just an act you can jump into. Jump three times and flap your wings and you're going to be better. Sometimes we treat it like relics. Sometimes we treat it like a magical formula. If you just have enough faith and things will go better for you. Well, tell that to Paul. Tell that to Peter who was crucified upside down. Tell to the missionaries who got kidnapped in Haiti and who knows what will happen to them. Yes, we pray that, they'll be, we pray that God will uh, save them and, and rescue them. But you know what? That may not be God's plan for them. This doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them, but it means that we pray for them in a way that we know, God, your will be done. Whatever you have for these missionaries, it's not a surprise to you that they were kidnapped. Use it for your glory. If your glory is that they're martyred, praise your name. But we pray, Lord, what we want you to do and what we see as good is that they would be rescued. And so we pray to that end as Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Faith is something you possess. It is something you activate. You exercise in your mind and in your heart. And yet, faith isn't about you at all, is it? Faith isn't something that glorifies me when I possess it. It's like, oh man, I have faith. Yeah. If that's your attitude, you don't understand what faith is. Faith is an outward-looking ability that human beings possess in hope or define hope in something other than ourselves. The only time you have faith is when you are desperate, is when you are helpless, is when you are in a time of need that you cannot do it. When you finally figure out that you can't do it, that is whenever faith kicks in. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And when he says that, that isn't a congratulations. Congratulations, your faith has made you well. No. It is a comment 
on her humility to go to the one person who can help her. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years. She'd gone to doctors. She tried at-home remedies. She tried holistic remedies. These two men were blind. They were at their wit's end. Jesus, by saying your faith has made you well, as a comment on humility. That is why he praised the centurion's faith so much. Because that centurion had the ability to recognize Jesus' authority and the centurion's lack of authority. Jesus' power and his helplessness. Faith is an action through which you are healed. Not because your faith is what heals you, but because your faith leads you to the one who can heal you. See, faith is a means to an end. This woman and these men were healed through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a means to an end. It is a vehicle that takes you to Christ. Is that how you view faith? Do you use faith, do you view faith as a marker of your humility? Do you view faith that it is a sign of your helplessness? It is a sign of your desperation? I remember last, I think it was this past Christmas season, I preached on faith and I preached faith as a virtue, and it is. And I, I stand by that. Faith is a virtue. But faith is a virtue because of man's helplessness. It is a virtue to recognize your inability. And when it comes to our stance before God, there is no greater inability than what we have. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is what that means. We Our poor in spirit means we have nothing to offer. The only thing we can do is believe. That's all, that's all we have. Faith in Christ is nothing less than the belief that Jesus Christ will save your soul from death. Do you get that from this story? This ruler, all he knows is his daughter is dead and Jesus can raise her. Do you believe that Jesus Christ can save your soul from death? One day, perhaps long after my bones have turned to dust, where there is no trace of my DNA left in that casket, I believe a miracle will take place. That God will reform my physical body but it will be a new body that is incorruptible and will never taste death again. An imperishable body that will live forever in glory. Faith in Christ is not only the belief in eternal life after you're dead, 
It's also the belief that God can give you life now. That you can live a new life connected to your creator. Where joy and hope and happiness and comfort can be found in the midst of suffering, in the midst of fear, in the midst of anxiety. The new life that he gave to this girl is just a foretaste of what is to come for the people who are filled with his spirit. Jesus says that it is good that I go away. He lived with his disciples for three years. He was everything to them. He saved them from death. He saved them from being shipwrecked. He performed miracles in front of their eyes, and he says, no, I need to go away. Trust me. Why would he say that to them? Because for him to leave means he could send his spirit to fill each one of his disciples. Each one of his followers could be filled with the spirit that brings life. Faith in Christ is more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of who he says he is. It is the deed, the act of a desperate person to do everything they can to know Jesus Christ. And the new life that he offers begins in this life and extends into the next. Are you willing to be like this woman who's desperate enough to sneak up behind Jesus in a crowd, which, by the way, was against their law? She was bleeding. She was considered unclean. For her to be in the presence of a crowd and not declare who she was was punishable. Are you willing to do what it takes? Do you have the faith it takes to get to Jesus to receive the life he has for you? Or are you going to be encumbered by bad attitudes and faulty thinking and woe is me attitude that I guess is just not for me? It's too hard. Maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. There's too many reasons not to believe. Faith overcomes unbelief. And sometimes God has to make us very, very desperate to get us to that point. I will pray as often and always as I can for all the people who we present at our prayer time, for those who are hurting, for those who have lost loved ones, for those who are sick, for those who have cancer, and that is right and good for us to do. But there's one thing I add in my prayers and that is that God would use it to draw them closer to him. Because oftentimes it takes immense suffering or pain to get us to the point where we're broken enough to recognize we can't do it and we need help. God have mercy on us when that happens to us. But it's, I consider it my duty to pray for people in such a way that God would use their pain and suffering to draw them to him. Because faith is an act of desperation. How desperate are you? Let's pray. Dear Father,